Let me ask you please to uh, pray with me. Father in heaven, we are grateful for your word and we trust that even as we come to it that you will uh, cause us to be attentive to it, to uh, listen and understand and believe. So work in us, Holy Spirit, that we might listen well, that we might understand and most assuredly that we might believe it. And, And I pray that this word today would, as always, but work in us uh, all that you intend, that we might be faithful people to you. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Second Corinthians, 2 Corinthians in chapter 8, please. Um, I want to read, as I read last Sunday, verses 1 through 15, uh, 2 Corinthians and, and chapter 8, please. And this is the word of God. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, But they gave themselves first to the Lord and and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness and our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment, this benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Well, if God will help me, I just want to take up verse 9 today and all of that. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, this particular verse is one that has become in the life of the church, was perhaps even then, but certainly through the history of the church, almost a creedal statement, almost a summary statement, a way that we can, we can, we can say what we believe to be true about Jesus, uh, rather like a profession of of faith, it's it's not unlike others that we come across in Scripture, like I, uh, the passage out of Philippians that I read earlier, Philippians two, that, that about Jesus and the the, the his, his pre-existent glory and his, uh, his humility and the incarnation and his exaltation and being declared uh, to be Lord. There there are many 
passages like that throughout scripture that become almost hymn-like or credo-like uh, for us. This is, this is one of them. And so I wanted, even though we, we took up a bigger passage last week, getting to this point, and we'll pick it up next week as we work our way through uh, 2 Corinthians as we have since this summer. But I, but I want to just pause here on this one. I can't in good conscience just sort of read it over. Because you see, everything that Paul says in chapters 8 and 9 about the church in Corinth and their giving and their generosity and all of that, it hinges on this statement. Uh, you know, Jesus uh, uh, is, is, is the Lord and he's the one who's given himself for us. And, and, and everything, every point that Paul ever makes is related somehow uh, to Christ and the work of Christ. Here he's being very, very explicit. Now, this passage, this verse, like all of them, comes in a context. And you know the context if you're here last week or even as I read it, you get the context. Paul's talking about giving. And, 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 and he's talking to the church in Corinth because they had begun to take up a collection for the poorer saints, Christians, in Jerusalem. But, but they stopped doing that for whatever reason. Uh, and, and Paul wants them to, 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 to renew that, to finish that off, to, to take up that collection so he can take it, Paul can take it, or others could take it, to Jerusalem to help out those Christians there who find themselves in a situation of, of, of being poor, of not having enough Materially, we know that Paul took up collections for the church in Jerusalem all the time, and so this is just part of that. And, and he begins, Paul does his, his exhortation to them, getting them to be generous by showing them a model of the churches in Macedonia. We talked about that last Sunday. And he says, I, I, Do you know about the, the grace of God that's been given among the churches in Macedonia? And, and the, the grace of God that was given to them resulted in an act of grace where they were willing, desiring, and did give generously. And so he said, do you know about the grace of God that was given to these churches in Macedonia? And the grace that came to them was the same grace that comes in the context of the lives of any believer. And that is his grace, God's grace, is his unmerited favor given to undeserving sinners, indeed sinners, who deserve the judgment of God. That's the grace of God. And the grace of God came to these churches in Macedonia. And it came in such a way that even though they found themselves being persecuted, this, this severe test of affliction, they found themselves being persecuted for their faith. Still, they overflowed in joy. And even though they were in extreme poverty, they overflowed in great generosity. And, and so how did that happen? Well, because the grace of God had come onto them. Because when the grace of God comes upon a person, uh, joy happens. Right? This, this sense that all is well. No matter what my circumstances are, all is well. And, and, I, and whatever that feels like, that's this sense, really, of, of joy in the lives of believers. This joy comes because we know, as we studied these churches in Macedonia, we, we know that we're loved by God. And that brings us joy. Because if we're loved by God, then all must really be well. If God, 
God really does love us. And we know that we're loved by God, as Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, because we're chosen by him, and we know we're chosen by him, because when the word of God, the gospel, came to us, it came to us in the power of the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, we believed it. And so, that's proof. God loves us. And that secures us in him, and and brings us this this joy. And not only that, because we, we know we're loved by God, we know then that we have all that we need for eternity. And, and nothing, no one can take that away from us. And we know that, that there's purpose in everything for us because he promises, God does, that he will work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And his purpose is to conform us to the image of Jesus. And so that's the good that will come. And so so we can have joy. Even in the midst of severe affliction, we, we know that, that, that God is for us, God is with us, that he loves us. That there's purpose in this. That we have all that we need and no one can take it, take it away. We're secure in that. And being secure in that and having received this grace. And they knew it was grace. They knew they didn't deserve it. These churches in Macedonia, these people, they knew they didn't deserve it. God had brought that to them. And what it did was it worked in them. And it freed them. It freed them from self-concern to be concerned for others. It freed them to really love And so when they heard about the need of the Christians in Jerusalem, even though these people in Macedonia were poor, it overflowed. And and they then participated in an act of grace themselves. And this act of grace was their voluntary generosity. Voluntary in the sense that Paul didn't even ask them to give you. As we said last week, you know, Paul went around and asked Churches for these donations to take up a collection for the poor in Jerusalem all the time. But you can only imagine when he was with these churches in Macedonia, they were so poor. How could he in good conscience look them with a straight face and, and, and ask them to give when they were, they were poor themselves? And so they begged Paul to allow them to give. What grace, you see, this free, this voluntary, this deep desire to give, to help others who are in particular need. And, and so that was an act, of, an act of grace on their part. And how did it come about? It came about because, you see, there's a connection always between receiving grace and being gracious. There's always a connection between receiving grace and then being gracious. There's those connections all throughout Scripture. We, we find the connection between being forgiven and forgiving. You remember the story that Jesus told uh, about uh, there was a, a man who, who owed a tremendous amount, never could repay it, and he went to... Uh, and, and the person came to him to whom he owed it and, and forgave the debt. He had received grace. He could never pay it. And he received grace. And, and then what did he do? Well, he went out and, fo- and, and, and found someone who owed him not an insignificant amount, but, but, but nothing compared to what he had owed and been forgiven. And he would not forgive that person that debt. And we're aghast at that. 
How could he receive such forgiveness and not forgive? How could he receive such grace and not be gracious? And that's the point of it. The point of it is that when grace comes uh, upon a person, there is then a working of that grace in us that causes us to be gracious. And so that was what Paul was expecting out of the church in Corinth. That was the context. The context was, you've received the grace of God, now be gracious. You've received this great act of grace from God, now you in action be gracious towards others. That's the connection. But he didn't stop with just the model of the churches in Macedonia. He went for the jugular. He went for his trump card. He went for what he always plays and always should play, and we should always play, Jesus. He says, verse 8, I say this not to command you, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you know it. He says, I wouldn't be appealing to you to be generous. I wouldn't be appealing to you to give to the, 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 the saints in, 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 in Jerusalem who are poor. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be even be asking you this if you hadn't already received the grace of God. There's a sense in which Paul wouldn't be asking it because it, it wouldn't make sense, uh, to, uh, but it makes sense for him to ask because they're all believers, and so they're all one, and so and so one should help the other. We know that. But it wouldn't also make any sense for him to ask if he hadn't known that God's grace had already worked in their lives. Because he's asking them to be gracious. And he knows that graciousness flows from having received grace. And he knows that they've received it. You know, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. This grace has been declared to you. This grace has come to you. You've received it. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so what did he think they knew about Jesus? Well, he begins to lay it out. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, so he begins with the richness of Jesus. He begins with the pre-incarnate Jesus, who Jesus was before the incarnation. The, the richness, if you will, is the word he uses because that's the contextual word to use when you're talking about, about giving and all of that. But the richness in Jesus. What was his wealth? How was he rich before this time of Incarnation before this time when he became man. Well, we know that he was rich uh, because he was in glory as the second person of the Trinity, ruling and reigning. You remember a time when Jesus was talking with a group of religious leaders and they were making claim that they were children of Abraham. And uh, Jesus made this statement. He said to them, before Abraham was... I am. Now, not only was that sort of bad grammar, but it was a statement that Jesus was making, a statement that they understood that he was really making about himself. You remember, you could now go back into the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, chapter 3, and think about Moses for a minute. You remember that when God was calling Moses at the burning bush to go back to Egypt... And be the hand of God to deliver the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. 
You remember the question that Moses asked God. He says, who shall I tell them has sent me? And God says to him, tell them, I am has sent you. The name of God, that was the name of God given. And it makes sense, of course, because it's the name of God. But it makes sense to me anyway, as I think about that, that that would be an appropriate name for God. I am. What does it mean? It means I am. It means I always have been and I always will be. I simply am. No beginning. I'm not created. I am. I've always been. I'm self-existent. I'm independent of everything else. I'm self-dependent. I need no one. I need nothing. I simply am. And when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, Jesus was saying, I'm God. I'm God in the flesh. When Moses heard those words, I was there, and those words were of me, I am, I'm eternal, I'm self-existent, I need no one. That's the wealth, the riches of the pre-incarnate Jesus, Son of God. That's why the author of Hebrews could put it like this, of Jesus in Hebrews and and, uh, Chapter 1, he writes, verse 3. Sorry, I've got a new Bible. I'm breaking it in. This is a great Bible, by the way. I got it really cheap. It's a second, a factory second. Did you know you can buy factory seconds? Bibles. What's really cool is that it's upside down. I really wanted to read like this today, and you go, wow, that's impressive. He can read the Bible upside down. The only weird thing is that the page marker is out the top. So it's like I have a little, I don't know what. Sorry for that diversion. It gave me a moment to find Hebrews. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Of Jesus, he writes, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. See, that's. That's Jesus. He is he, the very glory of God. And, and, and before he came to earth, he was the glory of God. He was God in the, he was God. Glorified, radiant, majestic. We have it in the passage I read, it, read earlier in Philippians in chapter 2. Concerning, concerning Jesus, verse 6. Verse 5, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, and that form uh, means he had all the characteristics of God. That was Jesus. He had all the characteristics of God. And so when Paul is writing to the church in, in, uh, in Colossae, in chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, he writes of him like this. He says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And that's it, you see. Uh, he is God. 
the firstborn of all creation doesn't mean that he was created. It means that he holds this place in all of creation, that he's the ruler of it. He's the heir of it. Everything belongs to him because he is the creator. What are the riches of Jesus? He's the creator of all things. Everything belongs to him. Everything was created through him and for him. There isn't anything that Jesus can't say, that's mine. That's rich, people. Right? There isn't anything about which he couldn't say, that is mine. So he was rich. He lived in great joy and peace and fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. All was perfectly well with him. He was loved perfectly and he perfectly loved. He was rich. Then notice Paul goes on. And he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So, So he became poor. The question is, how did he become poor? What happened? How did he become poor? Well, if we go back to our our Philippians passage in Philippians chapter 2, notice this, verse 6, about Jesus, who, although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death. On a cross. That's it. That's the poverty of Jesus. The humiliation of Jesus. Though he was in the form of God. That is he had everything about him that was true. That is true of God. For he was God. He didn't, guard, he didn't regard that a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He didn't empty himself of his divinity. But he poured out himself in humility. See the poverty of Jesus didn't come by subtraction. It came by addition. It isn't by what he subtracted from himself, his deity. He didn't do that. He didn't subtract his deity. But he added to himself humanity. Can you imagine? As, as is commonly said, the, infa- the infinite becoming an infant. He was the one who's self-existent, now becoming dependent as he takes upon himself the weakness of, of human flesh. How do we even speak of such a thing? Donald MacLeod, a Scottish theologian, puts it like this. He says, there is nothing lacking to the humanness of Jesus Christ. Bear in mind, he doesn't say this, I'll just add it because he said it in another part. He didn't give up his divinity. What we have here is a person, one person who has two natures, a divine one. And a human one. And you say, that's mysterious. And I say, it is mysterious. Um, There isn't anyone else like that ever. Nor will there be. Um, You can't ask the question, you know, explain the person of Jesus and give two examples. Right? There's just one example of him and that's him. So there's nothing lacking to the humanness of Jesus Christ. Nothing that was human was alien to him. And all that was human was found in him. In perfect proportion and balance, uh, 
human uh, physics, human physiology, human psychology. Uh, there's a human mind. There are human emotions. There are human affections. There's a human volitional process. He thinks humanly. God has information. He organizes it. He assimilates it. He memorizes it. He recalls it. He, he makes inferences in a perfectly human way. Uh, there is the biblical inference on the emotional life of Jesus. There is distress. There is weeping. There is sorrow. There is joy. There is entering into friendships on a human level. This whole human emotional life. Jesus in his human nature. Experiencing life perfectly as a as a human being. And you'll say, well, that isn't fair. We know that Jesus didn't experience, didn't have in his nature sin. And, and, and we understand that. But remember that sin isn't essential to humanness. It's essential to fallen humanity. But when Adam was in the garden, he was human. Yet before he sinned, he didn't sin. <laughs> and when we're on the new earth, glory will be human. I know some of you think you're going to be angels playing harps. But please, no. Um, none of us would look good in that dress they always wear. The pictures. We're not angels. We're human beings throughout all eternity. But in glory, we'll be human beings who not only will not, but cannot Sin. So sin isn't, thankfully, essential to humanness. And Jesus could experience all of humanity even without a sinful nature, even without sinning. But that doesn't mean he wasn't acquainted with sin. He was deeply acquainted with the temptation. The Satan came after him all the time. And he struggled in his humanity with those temptations. We we, we know, and yet he overcame them without sin. And that's the great news. There's a sense in which he may well understand sin better than I do, because at least in the context of temptations, he fought them to the end. I usually give in about, oh, about 20% in. I don't know what it's really like to fight it all the way through until it's done. And it hasn't gripped me. But Jesus does, you see. And of course, he knows the effects of sin better than any of us who are believers will because the guilt of our sin was placed upon him and he experienced the wrath of God, something a believer never will know. So here he was in his humanness, Jesus. And that the Bible would refer to as his, his poverty, his humiliation. He, he emptied himself not of his divinity, but he humbled himself, becoming a person, taking on the weakness of human flesh. And as this author says, he experienced uh, uh, an emotional life. He experienced weariness. He experienced sadness. He experienced joy. He experienced all of that as we, as human beings, experienced. He knows us. And even in his life, we realize that that uh, he, he, he was a refugee, as we mentioned last Sunday. He was, as a little child, taken to Egypt, um, running, the family did, in a sense, for their lives. Not only that, but he was in a poor family, probably, not destitute, but 
not among the upper classes by any means. And then in his life, as he put it, uh, the birds of the air have their nests, the foxes have their holes, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. It was the life that he lived. And then we know that at the end of his life, he was completely impoverished by any human standard. He had absolutely nothing. He had nothing materially. He had nothing socially. He had nothing politically. Nothing really relationally. His friends deserted him. He was forsaken by his father. By God. The father. And there he was. He who was rich, if you can only see that, the glory of Jesus before the incarnation, became poor. If we could see that as he's forsaken by his father. Now what makes him what makes this grace is the little expression for your sake. What makes this grace is the little expression for your sake. Who's the your in that? The you're in that, well, the, the Christians in Corinth, of course, but the you're in that is, is, is sinners, those who don't deserve that at all, those who deserve the wrath of God. But, but Jesus, for your sake, for the sake of sinners, though he was rich, became poor, so that through his poverty, you might become rich. Now, how does the poverty of Jesus, you should know the answer to this question, so be working on it. How does the poverty of Jesus cause us to become rich? Now, we know the rich there is not materially wealthy in this life, although we'll have all that we need, but, but in the life to come, we'll be wealthy in that sense, I suppose. But, but, but you get the metaphor. That through his poverty, we might become rich. How does the poverty of Jesus cause us, believers, to be rich? Well, first of all, it reminds us that we're poor. It reminds us that we're poor. If we're going to become rich, that means we aren't outside of him. And so we are poor. The way Jesus put it in the Sermon on the Mount is that we're poor in spirit. I mean, we might have wealth in, in, in a worldly sense, but, but, but we're poor spiritually. What that means is that we have nothing. We're really spiritually bankrupt. We have nothing that we can offer to God to cause him to accept us. We're, we're, we're spiritually poor. We have nothing that will enable us to last in real life throughout eternity. We're spiritually poor. So we realize that through his poverty, we become rich. It means we start out poor. Then how does his poverty cause us to be rich? Well, in his poverty, in his humiliation, he becomes for us our mediator. Do you remember that when Job was going through all of his troubles, one of his cries was that there would be, he would have someone to arbiter, somebody to be a mediator. Look how he puts it. He says in Job chapter 9, There is no arbiter or mediator between us, him and God, who might lay his hand on us both, 
Let us let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. When Jesus in his poverty becomes becomes the one who mediates for us. He represents us before God. In biblical language, he becomes our perfect high priest, our merciful and faithful high priest. Because you see, a priest is one who represents the people before God. And a, and a high priest, if he's worth his salt, is one who empathizes with the people, who knows his people. And so you see, uh, Jesus then knows us because he's shared our life. And so he becomes our mediator and he becomes our faithful high priest. And so he represents us perfectly before God. And what he does, Jesus, is that he's able to undo all that Adam, who was our first representative, lost for us. Isn't it fascinating that Adam, though he wasn't God, grasped being God. He desired to be God. That was the temptation that came to him from the evil one, that, 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 that you could be like God. And that's what he desired. And, and Jesus, on the other hand, didn't grasp that, even though he was God. It's fascinating that Adam was made to be a servant. And yet discarded that and didn't obey Jesus, who was the master, took on the role of servant to serve us all. And in Adam, we lost everything. And in Jesus, we receive everything. You see, his, his high priestness, his representation to us before God brings two things for us. We know this. One is that in his death, he took the penalty for our sin that we might be forgiven. And in his life, he lived in such a way that his righteousness would be ours. And so what are our riches? Well, I only have two minutes. <laughs> what are our riches? What are the riches that we have in Christ? And we can say eternal life. And that sort of covers it all. If we really know what, knows what, if we really know what that means, that, that we have life eternal, life with God, his life with us. And, and, and that can never be taken away. It just simply isn't living forever, but it's living forever in the blissful, wonderful, gracious, loving, secure presence of God. All right? And, and knowing that, that, that starts now. There's a sense in which we know that now. We, we see, as the scripture says through a glass darkly, uh, a day will come when we'll see it clearly, right? And, 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 and we anticipate that day. And so we know that the riches of, of eternal life uh, with that. We know the riches of sins forgiven. We know the riches of not being any longer under the wrath of God. In fact, in our confession today, one of the reasons we use this one is because it so well illustrates our riches. Uh, we receive his Worthiness for our unworthiness. We're unworthy. The riches of Christ is that he makes us in him. Then we are worthy. Apart from him, we're not. His sinlessness for our transgression. 
His purity for our uncleanness. We're unclean. We receive his purity. His sincerity for our hypocrisy. We receive his sincerity. His truth for our deceits. His meekness for our pride. His constancy for our backslidings. His love for our enmity. His fullness for our emptiness. His faithfulness for our failures. His obedience for our lawlessness. His glory for our shame. His devotedness for our waywardness. His holy life for our ungodly ways. His righteousness for our dead works. His death for our life. You see... Those are the riches that we have in Christ. That when God the Father looks at us, he sees us in him. That's why this profession of faith from the Heidelberg category and catechism. You know, when I read the answer, perhaps this struck you today. I have to be honest with you. I almost can't believe it. It's written in such superlative language. Only by true faith in Jesus can I be righteous before God, even though my conscience accuses me of having grievously sinned against all God's commandments, of never having kept any of them, and of still being inclined toward evil. Now, you know why our conscience can accuse us of that? Because it's true. And so when our conscience accuses us of that, we have to say, I I know, right? But then it goes on. And it says, nevertheless, without any merit of my own, my conscience is right, without any merit of my own, out of sheer grace, God grants and credits to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. That's the riches. As if, and again, this is the part, I, I believe is true, I can hardly believe it. As if I had never sinned nor been a sinner. Can that be true? As if I had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for me. Could that be true? If only I received this gift with a believing heart. And it is true, the riches of Christ. And all of that was gained because of his self-sacrifice. All of that was gained by his grace. So Paul would write in 2 Philippians chapter 5, another one of those creedal verses. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, knowing no sin. The riches of Christ, the riches, um, his riches of being uh, made to be sin, his poverty, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And then we mustn't forget that we have an inheritance that's kept in heaven and it can't perish, it can't spoil, it can't fade. And so we anticipate, we look forward to this day that's coming when we'll receive it in all its fullness. There was a song in the 70s. And uh, the words of this, I didn't remember them, uh, but I Googled them. Some of you may have uh, sung this song. I'm about to tell you it was a bad song. So if you liked it, that's, that's okay. We sing a lot of bad songs. and We like a lot of bad songs, uh, even in church sometimes. And 
Sometimes there are bad books. My Karen got saved through probably one of the worst books theologically ever written, the late great planet Earth, and uh, that helped her in her salvation. But but you know, God bless it. You know, uh, I'd never recommend it today. But 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 it, you know. So I get the point of the song. The, the song is: If heaven were never promised to me, and neither God's promise to live eternally, it's been worth having the Lord in my life. Living in a world of darkness, you came along and brought me light. No, it just isn't true. Uh, if heaven were, ne- if this isn't full, the fullness of eternal life, then, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, then, then we're to be pitied among all people. And, and so you can't disconnect what is to come from what we have now. And yes, it's worth having the Lord in our lives now because of, of, of being able to, to, to live in a world of darkness with the light of Christ. But the light of Christ doesn't just shine now. It shines throughout all eternity. And that's the riches that we have uh, in him, you see. Now, I suspect, I hope anyway, that I've said absolutely nothing new today. It's always my hope, by the way. But especially today. But to realize that everything, everything in the Christian life pivots around. That he who was rich became poor so that we, through his poverty, might become rich. Here it is, the night that he was betrayed. He took bread after giving thanks. He broke it. He gave it to his disciples. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. And in the same way, he took the cup. And again, after giving thanks, this too, he gave to his disciples. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. The apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup... We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What are we proclaiming? We give a lot of answers to that and all would be right. But here's one. We're proclaiming the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor. So that through his poverty we might become rich. Do you know that? Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Do you know the richness that you now have and will always have in him? And has that richness worked grace in you? Let's pray. Father, I pray for me, for us, that we would really know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that we'd really know it. Uh, Know it because it's been declared to us and we could sort of speak it back. But certainly more than that, that the grace of God has come to us and we've received it and we've believed it because it's worked in us. And so I pray that the work that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ has done in us 
to bring us to faith, to cause us to be conformed to the image of Jesus that secures us in him, that brings forgiveness and righteousness to us, that would work us in, in us in such a way that we would be individually and collectively people from whom we see acts of grace. So, Father, I pray that you'll take this bread and this juice and set it apart in such a way that we know that we're in the very presence of this one. Though he was poor, though he was rich, became poor, so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And this I pray in Jesus' name.